Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. Today, we are visiting with Ryan Zinn, Regenerative Projects Manager at Dr. Bronner's. Hey, Ryan. Hey there, how's it going? Good, how you doing? Oh, you know, not so bad. Just sort of uh, adjusting to this new reality here in the, the, the days and times of coronavirus, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, in terms of coronavirus. Obviously, you're in the soap business. Um, we've got supply chain issues. All of this relates also to the sustainability and, and regeneration work that you're doing all around the planet. So uh, I, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, I'm excited. We're in a very dynamic and, and changing world. And, you know, it's it's funny to think sometimes how a soap company could be really, you know, caught up in the middle of it. So I'm excited about our conversation, Aaron. Great. Well, let me uh, let me give our audience a bit of a background on you. Um, Ryan Zinn supports Dr. Bronner's international organic and fair trade supply chains in Africa, Asia and the Pacific. Ryan has worked the last 20 years with small-scale farmer organizations to develop agroecological strategies that are just and resilient. Ryan also supports nonprofit partners like the Fair Trade Ad Advocacy Organization, Fair World Project, and the small farmer crowdfunding platform called Grow Ahead. Uh, and we're going to be mentioning a number of different uh, resources and some videos. Uh, through our conversation, and we'll have links to all those uh, in the show notes for folks to reference. So, uh, so Ryan, yeah, here we are, and uh, we're dealing with COVID-19. Um, you're in California, you're at home, your kids are also at home. Uh, maybe just as a, a place to start, just because we're all one way or another uh, in this uh, experience together. Um, How's your day been today? And, and you know, what's what's going on in, in your world right now with the uh, coronavirus? Yeah, it, it's a little wild. You know, I usually start my day pretty early, um, mostly because most of our partners are either in Asia or Africa. And so that gives me an opportunity to either, you know, if I need to touch base with them. And I, I tell you what, if it wasn't for Zoom and Skype, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble these days since all of our travel to all of our partner projects has been really slowed down. So um, I am just uh, hunkering down for the time being. I've got my, my two uh, uh, children here at home. I've got a teenager and a, a tweenager. And then I've got my, my wife, who is a pediatric nurse, who's also wrapping up her uh, master's in nurse practitioner at UCLA. So everybody's gone virtual, which has been a big, uh, you know, a change for them to, to kind of think through their academic life now uh, online. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to uh, kind of kind of figure it all out now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we know for certain that uh, what's happening right now is, is definitely having an impact on the uh, soap companies. And I'm, I'm really curious to ask, you know, I'm assuming that demand has just skyrocketed for the Dr. Bronner's products. Um, you know, what does that look like in the immediate term? But also, what does that mean uh, over the coming weeks and months in terms of supply chain procurement? And, uh, you know, how resilient are those supplies coming from all around the world? That, that's a great question, Aaron. So I think, you know, the, the good news is that, you know, we've been deemed by the state of California and the, the county of San Diego as a quote unquote essential business. Certainly, you know, soap and hand sanitizer will be in high demand um, for the foreseeable future. And as such, you know, all, all our sales have been really booming, which is, is great on the one hand. And then, 
you know, I, I form part of a really small team and our job really is to work with our, our partners on the ground that produce all of our raw materials and, and sort of build out our supply chain. So that includes everything from like coconut oil and palm oil, um, all the way to our essential oils like mint oil. And right now, um, you know, our biggest challenge is working with farmers on the ground um, since many of the, the countries or regions have actually been facing some sort of variation of either full quarantine or, or shutdown or, or limited operation. And, you know, that's, you know, kind of, I think something that is often overlooked. In, in fact, is like, you know, you have farmers on the front end of this. We work with 10,000 small farmers. Many of them are, you know, working in, in relatively impoverished communities. And our goal is to not only provide them with, you know, a sustained, fair trading relationship with Dr. Bronner's, um, but make sure that they're thriving as well. And so if they are more or less quarantined to their farm or to their home, then like many other food servicers here in the United States, they don't have an income, they can't put food on the, the table. And so not only is it important for our bottom line, but we're really committed um, to, to their livelihoods as well. So, you know, just to give you an example, you know, um, hand sanitizer, which is now, you know, you know, flying off the shelves everywhere. You know, we work with um, small scale farmers in Paraguay and Ecuador, um, and our farmers, you know, partners in, in Ecuador, they are just stuck at home because they have a full on 15 day quarantine. So they won't actually be able to get their product to port and ship to us. So we're trying to be as creative as possible. Um, certainly, we don't want to abandon our partners in a time of need um, and go with another sort of cheaper alternative or, or, or quicker alternative. Um, but we also need to make sure that we can continue to make soap and hand sanitizer and the rest of our products. So um, I think on top of the day-to-day -day work that we do, which has its own challenges, certainly overlaying COVID-19 on top of it um, provides another wrinkle that we have to, to kind of think through and be pretty creative. Absolutely. Well, I, I know that you and the team at Dr. Bronner's are extraordinarily creative and, and really on the forefront, the cutting edge of the the regenerative and the sustainable uh, movements worldwide. And I, I'm so excited to ask you about uh, the ways in which you guys are supporting regenerative agricultural practices around the world. And, and, and what does that mean? I, I know a lot of our audience is familiar with the term regenerative. Some of our audience works in the regenerative uh, realm. But of course, we also have a lot of folks who are are just getting uh, acquainted with the term and, and what it means. And uh, clearly, this is going to become a very, very important uh, action item for us all around the planet. And uh, you guys are leading the way. So regenerative agriculture, what is it and, and what are you guys doing? Well, I mean, I think for us, you know, our sort of journey towards this space in 2020 kind of starts about 15 years ago. Um, when the, the Bronner family made this commitment to convert and transfer all of our raw material, or coconut oil, for example, over to organic sources, um, what we quickly realized is that without having a lot of, I don't know, insight into your supply chains, it's really hard to tell if the integrity is there for organic. Um, certainly, we didn't know about the working conditions, whether farmers were paid fairly. And so as a result, we were, you know, more or less forced to set up our own supply chains. So back about 15 years ago, we set up our first supply chain in Sri Lanka to produce coconut oil, uh, which is our number one ingredient in most of our soaps. Um, and as a result, we did that not only to have organic integrity so that we, we can ensure that the, the consumer has um, a, a product free from pesticides and is grown sustainably, um, but certainly we also wanted to produce under fair trade conditions as well. So that means that farmers are paid fair prices, they're paid promptly, we're not going to abandon them if they face a drought or COVID-19 or, or what have you. And so we wanted to make sure that that was really our foundation. 
And over time, what we realized is that we really wanted to take it further. And so we've kind of been approaching this, this idea of regenerative organic agriculture as a way to not only um, ensure that we have a stable supply chain for ourselves, for sure, um, but really I think the big thing is thinking it through the lens of climate change. So what we know is that climate change has already been having a big impact on farmers around the world, um, whether they call it climate change or something else, but really for the, like the past 10 or 20 years, we've seen increases of you know, crop loss, you know, more pest and disease problems for farmers. Um, and this is leading to all sorts of things, you know, migration to the cities, um, losing land, those types of things. And so our goal is to really improve our practices on the ground um, under this sort of banner of regenerative organic. And really what that means is a couple of different things just in terms of general principles. One, um, you know, in nature, nature has no monoculture. So really our focus is to diversify as much as we can um, with our small farmer partners. And that means um, supporting them to diversify into other crops and other systems that quite frankly, we may never actually use in our own supply chains to make soap. So for example, in Ghana and West Africa, where we see a number of our farmers actually grow cocoa to make chocolate. Um, there, it's a very, very heavily, you know, pesticide-dependent crop where they just spray fungicide left and right just because of the, the climatic conditions and the practices. And so our goal is to get those farmers off that pesticide treadmill, improve their practices, which will not only improve their resiliency and improve their food security, um, but also provides them additional income. While we are able to provide fair prices for the products that we buy, um, the rest of the marketplace, quite frankly, is just not fair. And so we want to make sure that we can find fair prices for virtually everything that farmers produce, whether that is sold and distributed in local markets, or we find them premium buyers in the United States or in Europe. Well, that's tremendous. You guys are, are going well above and beyond your own uh, direct needs and interests uh, with these farmers. That's really remarkable. Yeah, you know, for us, you know, it's it's been a slow process. You know, when you start to convert farmers from, you know, these long, you know, sort of seeded, you know, experience of using chemicals to farm, um, it's a long sort of transitional process. And so we what we want to do is accompany farmers during that process, but also provide them incentives so that they can sort of, you know, weather the changes that they are facing on the ground themselves. You know, quite frankly, depending on what you grow, sometimes organic may have higher labor costs, for example, or require you to spend more time out in your field. So we wanna make, make sure that as much as possible, really the true cost uh, of what it takes to produce a regenerative and fair product um, is reflected um, in our relationship with farmers. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've spoken with a number of farmers over the years about the uh, often the uh, increased labor requirements associated with organic practices. But on the other hand, there's an offset uh, coming from no longer needing to buy these expensive chemical inputs. And I'm curious with these farmers you've worked with in general, um, how does their economic performance uh, trend over time as they convert to organic and then build uh, in a regenerative framework? I, I would say it really varies from place to place. You know, some places you have quite a bit more labor, uh, depending on the cropping, you know, system. So for example, um, all of the mint that we use in our, or mint oil we use in, in our, you know, most famous uh, peppermint uh, soap comes from Uttar Pradesh in, in India, where they grow uh, mint to make into essential oils, but they have the rotations as well thing from like um, wheat, to patty rice, and those types of things. And so really our goal is to figure out a way to, to support them during that transition period where in some cases their costs may go up, 
because of labor, for example, or their yields may go down. Um, but once our experiences is once you get over the hump, that, that transitional period where you actually certified organic, you can receive that organic premium, um, then, you know, things begin to balance out quite a bit better in, in the favor of farmers. Really kind of our goal, you know, once we go through this transition period, that's both required for the marketplace, but also just for soil to kind of like come back alive again and to be able to produce healthily, um, then you have many, many more options. And so after that sort of investment of time, and if you're growing, you know, tree crops, there's quite a bit of investment in terms of seedlings, for example, we want to make sure that farmers have sort of a stable, um, diversified sort of farm economy that can sort of you know, whether the, the, the changing either climatic conditions or even the market conditions. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, uh, speaking of the uh, peppermint, uh, Dr. Bronner's soap, I've got some of that in my bathroom. So I'm a, oh, I'm a, I'm a daily user and a, and a big fan. Um, well, I'm, I'm wondering, can you help connect the dots a little more and, and paint more of a picture for folks? What is the connection between regenerative agriculture, soil and climate crisis? Sure. Okay. So that, that's a really good question, Aaron. You know, one of the things that we often think about when we think about climate change that either it's, you know, sort of exhaust coming out of cars, tailpipes, or, you know, factory spewing contaminants into the atmosphere, sort of on the, you know, emissions end of things. Or we also think of things like solar panels, for example, um, as a way to kind of mitigate against some of the, the bigger and broader kind of climate change challenges. What most folks may not realize is that agriculture or or industrialized agriculture, in fact, is one of the larger, you know, um, sources of greenhouse gases. So everything from, you know, mechanized agriculture using big combines and tractors um, to the production of uh, food, for example, and fertilizers, pesticides, um, but even just the simple fact of turning over soil and like plowing it very heavily actually releases carbon stored in that soil into the atmosphere. And so this sort of quote unquote, you know, industrial agricultural experience we've been doing now for the last 60 or 70 years has actually created quite a bit of greenhouse gas emissions, um, you know, that have been going up into the atmosphere. So we see a lot of potential for regenerative agriculture to not only stop those emissions, but actually sort of restore this carbon cycle, which basically means that soil can act as a carbon sink, suck all that CO2 out of the atmosphere, put it into the soil, which is not only beneficial for the climate, but it's also really, really important for, for plants and healthy soil. All of that turns into actual sort of nutrients to have a, a very healthy um, soil profile. And so that's been pretty much our goal in terms of how we've been approaching um, farming at all of our projects. Really, it's this really combination is to implement practices that sequester carbon, um, where appropriate, um, but also build up our soil health. And so that's one of the things that is probably, you know, a very simple concept to do, but it's one thing that really provides a lot of stability for farmers. They're able to actually absorb those climate shocks, whether it's drought, not enough rain, too much rain, high temperatures, those types of things. Um, but it also acts as a way for us to sort of, sort of turn back on some of the damage we've been doing um, through climate change. So really our, our kind of focus here is to see agriculture done regeneratively and organically as a way for us to address multiple things at once. Turn back climate change, have farmers feed their local communities, and then be able to produce a product like Dr. Bronner's soap that's done in a way that's fairly and as, as cleanly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And w one of the things that here at the Y on Earth community, obviously, we uh, really emphasize for folks is the critical role that each of us as individuals plays as a consumer uh, with our uh, purchasing decisions, where we're directing our consumer demand signals. 
and I'm wondering, can you speak to a bit about the dynamics that you see out in the marketplace? And of course, it's a it's a segue uh, into the uh, regenerative organic certification that uh, I know we're all really really excited about. Um, but what 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 do you see out there in the marketplace in terms of the importance of the consumer demand signals? Well, one thing I think um, which has been really exciting for for me is that one, I think consumers, ethical consumers, are seeing that. Um, they want to go, quote unquote, above and beyond organic and maybe even fair trade. And they're seeing climate change as one of the big existential threats that it is, not only to their communities, but to the foods that they like. You know, I always tell folks, if, if you really want to get freaked out, you know, above and beyond COVID-19, just type in your favorite food into Google and climate change, whether it's chocolate, coffee, wine, bread. There's been a huge number of sort of like, you know, evidences and impacts that we're seeing throughout different supply chains. And so I think consumers are becoming increasingly savvy about that. And so as a result of all the fine work that's been done by, you know, farmers organizations and, and other nonprofits and NGOs, I think farmers are, are produce consumers are really looking to, to make sure that, that that consumer dollar that they're spending really goes to those products that reflect their values. It's not just enough to be organic or just enough to be fair trade. They want to basically look at the suite of values altogether in one product. And so I think that, of course, is actually very, very encouraging. It means that we've got this sort of emerging consumer base that's really willing to put their money where their mouth is, which I think is really positive. On the other hand, what you have now in the, the marketplace, other than you know claims like organic, for example, which is regulated at the federal level, um, you're seeing all sorts of claims in the marketplace that it's regenerative this or free range that. And none of these claims are in fact regulated or have any basically, you know, sort of assurance behind them. And so one of the things that we did at Dr. Bronner's was look to connect with other like-minded organizations and companies to create a standard and process that really put a whole lot of sort of like force and uh, validity behind the claims. And so we partnered with the Rodale Institute out of Pennsylvania, um, Patagonia, and a number of other NGOs and farmers organizations to create a draft or pilot standard called the Regenerative Organic Certification or ROC standard. And so from there, our goal was really to be able to try to bring together all of our important values. So organic certainly was there, uh, fairness, uh, for farmers and farm workers was certainly uh, front and center. And then also looking at soil health and animal welfare. Um, you know, one of the things that we look at is, is like when we look at a farm or a product, we want to make sure that the, all those values are there. Well, it's really tough for a consumer to try to figure that out all on their own. Heck, I'm, you know, in this business. And sometimes it's also tough for me when I go to the supermarket to figure out if the claims that a product they're making are in fact real or just greenwashing. So our goal was to be able to create a standard that reflects our values um, and then can be verified, which means that a third party will go out and certify to it. Um, and then the consumer can know that, hey, look, all of my values are encapsulated in this product. Yeah, that's so powerful. Well, we're really excited about the regenerative organic certification and uh, the Why on Earth community I know is going to be doing a whole lot in the coming months to help build awareness, educate and mobilize uh, around that out in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, it's, it makes me uh, think also about a lot of the other ways in which we're all engaged in cultivating a more regenerative uh, oriented culture. And I know uh, you have some thoughts about um, what living regeneratively means uh, in addition to whatever soap we might choose to buy. What, yeah, what are some actually, of those? <laughs> well, I tell you what, I mean, it's actually, you know, maybe the, the one silver lining of the COVID-19 crisis is that 
you know, it, it's really kind of forced our hand to do two things. I think one is to look like our, at our own home. Um, you know, I, I, I saw a couple of stats really in the last maybe 10 days where, you know, the sales of uh, organic seeds have just gone through the roof. And so I see that as a really positive step, even if it's a, a really small, uh, you know, a couple of containers of herbs you have on your porch or your balcony or, you know, on your windowsill, or you convert your entire front lawn to uh, a, a home garden. I think those are really powerful connections because I think, I think on multiple levels, one, if we can actually actively participate in the growing of our own food, even if it's relatively small or symbolic, I think there's just a very um, clear connection that you would see with the rest of the food that you buy. You have a greater appreciation um, that all of the work that farmers and farm workers go through and how hard it is and what, what are the challenges it is to actually get fair and organic food to your, your, your front door, to your supermarkets. I think that's really important. And the other thing that I think is exciting for me to see is that there's more and more examples of collaboration um, happening right now, which I think is really, really critical. I don't think any of us can, can go it alone. Um, doesn't matter how much money we have or how much space we have to grow whatever we have. I think being able to collaborate and depend upon your neighbors, I think is really, really critical. So I've seen some really great examples just in the last week of people working together, either they're to help their neighbor go get you know, their, their medicine at the pharmacy, for example. Everybody came together and shared their resources on my street. Um, for those folks that didn't get any toilet paper because somebody was hoarding them. And so it was a great way for us to be able to say, how can we collaborate um, in a way and um, you know, sort of have that mutual aid network within your own community. I think that's really, really critical. So to me, it's, it's a couple of things. One is making sure those relationships locally within your street or your neighborhood are really, really strong. And then second, it's also just basically getting your hands dirty and going out there and kind of growing what you can. Because I think that sort of connection to the earth is so much more tangible when you can do it yourself, as opposed to thinking about it, you know, theoretically about some farmer, you know, far away from you, you know, kind of doing their own thing and you have no real connection to them. So those are, for me, I think are probably the two sort of biggest and best, most exciting things I've seen. And then I should just add, you know, one of the things that we've been really focusing on is I think it's great to buy organically and regeneratively as much as you can, but we need to take all of that energy and then put it into making good public policy so that way we can support farmers to transition regeneratively as well. So there's a lot of great discussions happening right now to make sure that farmers are supported as they trans transition to regenerative practices, whether that's training um, through the USDA. Um, one of the things that we think has got a lot of potential is for like school districts and hospitals um, to have regenerative purchasing policies so that all of the produce and the food that they get comes from regenerative sources. That would be one solid way to support those farmers make that transition. Because sometimes the marketplace isn't so kind to, to farmers. And so we want to make sure that they've got good, long-term, stable contracts so that they can actually make those investments in those regenerative practices. Yeah, obviously a lot of different ways we can all uh, help support these efforts. And I think it's becoming with COVID-19 increasingly clear to us uh, how uh, vulnerable some of the uh, food supply chains can be and how much we truly uh, depend on the farmers, the folks growing the food. And, uh, you know, when, when I was writing the book, Why on Earth, a few years ago, uh, I, I talked about three different ways we can uh, think about how we're procuring our food, uh, grow, uh, know, and show for shorthand. So grow some of your own, <laughs> know uh, some farmers in the vicinity from yeah. whom you can source things, and then 
show with those things we are buying at the store or, or through uh, e-commerce, through third-party certification, show that those food and beverage products are coming uh, to us with good treatment of people, good treatment of soil, good treatment of water. Um, so the grow, no show framework seems to, to hold up, I would say, even more uh, robustly uh, in the context of what we're all experiencing right now with coronavirus. Oh, 100%. And I, I think this is a really, it's a great opportunity, but it's going to be a very challenging time for small farmers all over. You know, quite frankly, if they don't have a couple of months of, you know, just cash cash flow to be able to weather sort of these these challenges, it's going to be really challenging. So I think really the big thing that I've been seeing in sort of my community is figuring out how to support either small and independent businesses um, or farmers, or like you said, using sort of those e-commerce options um, if those products aren't quite, you know, available, you know, in your local community. I think that's super critical to be able to support them during this this tough time because to be honest, what I, what I worry is that, you know, only sort of those big sort of corporate industrial farms and, you know, supermarkets, they're, they're going to weather this just fine. It's the folks that we really rely on for those regenerative, you know, products to be able to, to really weather this as well. And the only way they're going to do that is if that we can support them in this process. So like you say, knowing your farmers and, and knowing who you're purchasing your food from is absolutely critical. Absolutely. And in, in that whole mechanism that uh, we call community supported agriculture, the CSA model is a perfect way right now to support farmers because essentially here in the springtime, uh, we pay them for this year's production and it gives them the upfront cash they need uh, to work over these coming months um, as we get our weekly shares of uh, produce and, and sometimes other products. Some have eggs, some, some do uh, other things as well. So to the extent that we can in our communities sort of double down on our community supported agriculture uh, purchasing, I think that's another way we can really help support a lot of these far, uh, small farmers in particular. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I love, you know, I've been seeing a couple of different resources where people can sort of support either local stuff or there's, you know, I, since I work a lot in kind of the international supply chains like coffee and, and what have you, you know, being able to provide, you know, work with roasters who are actually committed to their supply chains, I think is really, really critical as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got to give a shout out to Equal Exchange, one of the uh, cooperative um, global networks doing coffee, tea, um, chocolate. Uh, they're doing a lot of great work as well. So a uh, shout out to those guys. They've uh, supported some of our Why on Earth work over the months. And maybe I'll take that opportunity uh, to thank uh, some of our sponsors um, making this podcast series possible and making all of our uh, community mobilization work possible. And these include uh, the Lidge Family Foundation, Purium, Earth Coast Productions, and Waylay Waters. Um, with Waylay Waters, uh, it's a social enterprise and all of their proceeds support the Why on Earth community. And you can actually join the uh, monthly giving program with Waylay Waters and receive some of the CBD aromatherapy soaking salts. Great for your at-home self-care in the context of coronavirus. You can go to whyonearth.org slash waylay-waters. That's W-E-L-E-waters uh, to sign up. And, uh, of course, want to also mention drbronner.com. Um, you'll note in the URL, it's drbronner.com. And um, want to uh, also give a big shout-out to all the folks in the Why on Earth community who have joined our monthly giving program to support all of this work. 
Um, in the context of what's happening with coronavirus, we're accelerating a number of resources for folks, resources for permaculture, gardening at home in your neighborhood. Uh, we're working on neighborhood uh, resiliency and sustainability handbook and video guides and actually uh, are excited to be talking with Dr. Bronner's about uh, collaborating on some of this. We're collaborating with the uh, Rodale Institute on, on these efforts as well. And so stay tuned as uh, Why on Earth is helping to make available a number of uh, resources in all of the context of uh, us mobilizing our gardens and our sustainability practices in our own homes and yards and neighborhoods. And I know that uh, Ryan, you've uh, provided us with a, a number of links um, of resources that, that you have to offer and, and we'll have all these in the uh, show notes. And I wanted to just walk through them. Um, the first one on the list that you provided is the uh, Small Scale Farmers uh, Cool Planet uh, video. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was a, a video we did, wow, five years ago now, um, just as people started to begin to make these connections between uh, farming and climate change, um, and then really the impact that regenerative organic agricultural can have. And so really our goal was to talk a little bit about sort of the big picture, talk about some of the, the problems associated with chemical industrial agriculture, but really focus in on sort of this, what we call small scale farmer solution. And, and that basically means that you know, despite the millions and millions and millions of, of acres of, of monocrops grown out there of corn and soy or cotton and what have you, it's really small farmers the world over that are actually feeding their communities. So one of the most kind of interesting stats that we've come across is that, you know, uh, small farmers feed the majority of the world's population just on a quarter of the farmland. So this goes to show you that we can really focus in on having a very healthy and regenerative uh, food supply is so long as we are about the support, support small, small farmers. And so we highlight a number of good brands that are doing great things by partnering with small farmers um, and then putting that within the context of climate change. So we did that right at around um, the well, 2015 uh, uh, climate mobilization in New York City um, and uh, sort of leading up into the, the Paris climate talk. So still a lot of work to be done for sure, but at least it gives a good frame to think about um, both the food supply, small farmers, and climate change. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, uh, I encourage folks to check out that video. And then uh, you have another video called Journey to uh, Provitamente. I know I'm not saying that uh, exactly correctly. I know you'll say it, but uh, this is another video that you've shared with us. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so last year um, we had our um, uh, CEO, our Cosmic Engagement Officer, David Bronner, um, and our team visited um, our local uh, partners in uh, Uttar Pradesh, India. Um, and they run Pavitramanth, um, which is our mint oil supplier. And so the video is great because it gives you sort of an up close and personal experience of some of the realities facing the, the small farmers uh, with which we work in. And so in India, we work with about 2,000 small farmers. They have anywhere between a half an acre to maybe an acre or two acres. Um, that not only support their family, but also grow mint and, and things like that. So it's a good example of how um, we like to sort of showcase the work that's being done with our partners and our projects um, by also, you know, sharing some of the voices of, of the farmers and community members themselves. So if you want a, a great snapshot into the a day in the life of uh, some farmers in Uttar Pradesh, India, and sort of our relationship with them, this is a great video. That's great. I, I can't help but uh, make mention that uh, David Bronner, your chief uh, 
cosmic engagement okay. officer CEO uh, was on our podcast uh, several weeks ago. And so if folks want to check out that episode, you can find that at the uh, whyonearth.org slash uh, community dash podcast page. And uh, it was such a fun conversation. And I imagine he's got to be a, just a wonderful guy to work with, with his, his yeah. passion and his various interests. Um, it was a real joy uh, interviewing him. Yeah, no, I have to say the Bronner family from top to bottom are just the most committed people I've ever, you know, worked with. And, and to be honest with you, my background is more in like rural development internationally. And I was always very skeptical of working in the private sector, but I would say Dr. Bronner's is one of the few companies I would ever consider working for. So I'm very, very grateful to be able to work with a great team. That's really beautiful to hear. Um, before uh, we continue on this list of resources you've provided, I want to also be sure to mention, because I um, forgot to earlier uh, when giving shout outs to supporters, etc. On the whyonearth.org site, we also have a few resources specifically for gardening. Um, one is called the Community Mobilization Kit, and it includes some biodynamic soil activator that you can use in your garden and actually um, in, in your neighborhood if you want to. You can uh, share this with your neighbors. Uh, it also includes our soil stewardship handbook and some video resources uh, around the uh, soil building that's uh, so important to growing good, healthy, nutrient-dense food and medicinal herbs. Uh, we also have the uh, garden bundle kit that we put together for you that has some similar um, resources and some biochar from one of our biochar partners. So just wanted to make sure that uh, folks know about that. Now soon we're also launching a, a very exciting uh, bath bomb for gardens, basically a biodynamic soil activator prep wrapped in uh, magnesium sulfate like a bath bomb that you dissolve into water before spraying it around your garden and your yard. So that's coming. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun for everybody. Uh, so just wanted to be sure to mention all that. And um, on that note, I guess uh, we're going to segue to the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is regenorganic.org. And uh, Ryan, you already mentioned them, but just tell us a little more about what uh, information we'll find uh, when we go to that resource. Yeah, 100%. So the Regenerative Organic Alliance is an organization that was co-founded by Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's Rodale Institute, and a number of other nonprofits and uh, farmers and, and, and businesses. And really the goal here was to provide a home for this regenerative organic certification process. So folks that go to that website will get a chance to take a look at all of the, the draft standard of basically what we're looking at in terms of how we define regenerative organic, um, some updated information on the pilots. So anytime you kind of create a new program or a new standard, you actually want to go ahead and test it out. And so over the last year or so, we've been piloting out the standard um, actually at three of our projects in Ghana, Sri Lanka, and in India, um, with other partners as well, um, both in North America and abroad. Um, and right now we're in the process of actually going through um, all of the feedback on, on the, the experience from the farmers and the, the businesses that participated. And as a result of that process, the, the standard itself will then become public consumption to any company or farm that would like to actually be certified against it. Um, and so people get a chance to see who the pilot participants were, what the standard language looks like, um, and then some of the more up-to-date information in terms of, uh, you know, where we'll be presenting and things like that. 
You know, I'm curious, um, will it be sort of like a pass fail, either you're certified or you're not, or does it have tiers and scoring and sort of different levels of uh, accomplishment? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, Aaron. So, you know, one of the things that we've realized is that, you know, starting from, from scratch, it's really hard to get to regenerative. It's kind of sometimes a long process and it can be expensive. So what we wanted to do was to provide a pathway for farmers and ranchers to have more or less continuous improvement and sort of ben clear benchmarks um, so that there's an actual incentives and then they get recognized and actually can charge a premium. So the way that the standard was set up is that right now there's three tiers, bronze, silver, and gold. Um, and so those tiers basically reflect the level to which um, the brand or the farm or ranch has actually gone to ensure not only soil health, um, but fair, fair trade practices as well as animal welfare. Um, and so what we wanted to do is provide a clear pathway for farmers, but also realizing that, you know, USDA organic is really the sort of entry point. Um, we wanted to make sure that this standard built on organic um, and that didn't, wasn't really a distraction or take anything away from it. So that is one thing that is super clear as far as the pass fail part of things. Certainly USDA organic is your first sort of barrier entry. And then from there, there's a pathway for folks to continually build upon um, their, their practices and be recognized by the label. Okay, so we know that regardless of the tiers, if we're getting something that's certified regenerative organic, it will not have these poisonous, toxic chemicals that we would otherwise find in conventional agriculture. Indeed, so just to give you an example, um, you would have as your sort of entry point for any uh, certified entity within the regenerative organic system, um, but it also includes things like child labor, for example, or forced labor, um, or sort of minimal requirements on sort of soil health practices. So what we wanted to do is we realized that there's a, quite a bit of investment required by farmers. There's some training that's in, re required as well, and they had to build up their own supply chain. So one of the things that we realized that is very important, especially in our partnership with the Rodale Institute, is that one way you can ensure that you can reduce your, um, you know, your fertilizer costs, for example, and your um, input costs, for example, which is like pesticides, um, is by improving your rotation. So instead of just growing corn and soy year after year, the more diverse rotations farmers can use, including cover crops, can in fact help build up their soil health, but also reduce their, their, their costs. But to be able to do that, requires some infrastructure, some training, some collaboration perhaps with their neighbors. So we wanted to build in a basically a ladder to, to allow for farmers to be able to build up to that and then be recognized in the marketplace. Beautiful, yeah. And you just mentioned Rodale um, there at rodaleinstitute.org. Uh, we recently recorded an interview with uh, CEO Jeff Moyer on a lot of this regenerative work. Um, they've been around, what, 70 years or something like yeah. that, really leading the way from a scientific research standpoint on organic uh, agricultural practices. Um, Rodale, I, from our vantage point into the ecosystem of the organizations that are really leading the way, Rodale, like you guys, is, is right at the heart of all of this. Yeah, we've been inspired by the work done at Rodale over the years. You know, I remember, wow, well, you know, 20 plus years ago in, in university reading some of their, their research that was done. And to be honest with you, one of the things that kind of kicked off this whole uh, process was a, a white paper that they did maybe about seven or eight years ago called Regenerative Organic Agriculture, a down-to-earth approach to addressing climate change. So there they basically look at all the scientific data and then they're able to actually quantify what each practice can do in terms of actually drawing down 
um, atmospheric carbon. So those are all things that I think are really, really critical to think about. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're not just uh, approaching this from um, kind of a, you know, esoteric, you know, just, you know, this, this dislocated approach, but really there, there's hard science that goes behind um, basically every, each and every practice that we do. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. And then um, you had also shared the Climate Collaborative, which is climatecollaborative.com. Yeah, so this is a great initiative that I, I'm really excited about. So, you know, in the sort of, um, you know, consumer product space, um, sometimes companies need a little bit of support and collaboration to, to make all of these, uh, these steps toward being um, as responsible in the climate space as possible. So the Climate Collaborative is a coalition of companies that has come together to make commitments to actually improve their practices. And this includes everything from um, transportation, you know, electricity at their facilities, um, supply chains, um, like we've been talking about, um, packaging, all of these different things. And so it's a way for companies to come together, share best practices and work together, um, and then be able to actually amplify these things. Because I don't think any one company alone can tackle all the things that we need to address. So I really like their approach and, and they've got a great amount of resources out there um, for any company, big or small, um, that is getting involved. So if you have a company uh, um, and you're looking to make improvements on all things climate, I, I would highly recommend them. That's great. Thank you very much for that. And um, tell us about Grow Ahead, growahead.org. Yeah, so, you know, Dr. Bronner supports a number of great causes, um, you know, across the spectrum, you know, and so, of course, regenerative agriculture is uh, close to my heart. Um, and this is one of the initiatives that we've been supporting the last couple of years. Um, and one of the things that we've realized is that this notion of, of agroforestry, which is basically farming with trees, um, in a way that is very diversified, um, not only is a, the, probably in my sort of, you know, I would say biased opinion, but is a great way to su uh, supercharge carbon sequestration while also providing a great income for farmers. And so our goal is to be able to help small farmers all over the world um, invest in agroforestry systems so that they can, in fact, um, support their local food economies, um, but also sequester carbon um, and, and really kind of create the, these islands of knowledge, so to speak. And so for folks that would be interested in participating in, in crowdfunding, um, all of these replanting efforts all over the world, I, I highly recommend they take a look at, at growahead.org. Okay, that's, that's really wonderful. Thank you for that. And then um, the, uh, the final resource that you shared with us on your list is a very recent uh, article uh, from Dr. Bronner's called Dr. Bronner's supports the Green New Deal. And with everything happening, obviously this is a, a huge year in terms of policy and COVID-19 has really amplified certain aspects of discussions that have already been uh, underway. But th this one seems to be uh, so spot on in terms of linking a number of these different key uh, efforts and initiatives. So uh, Dr. Bronner supports the Green New Deal. Tell us uh, what does that mean and, and why did you guys publish that? Yeah, so for so some of those history buffs out there might remember um, the, the history of the New Deal, which happened during the, the, the Roosevelt administration. And the idea was to put all of the resources of the federal government behind a recovery um, that would allow for folks to get out of the Great Depression 
um, through things like employment, public works, um, support for farmers, those types of things. And so the idea going forward is that really to be able to tackle the greatest existential challenge of our lifetime, which is climate change, we really need to be able to leverage all of the power that we have at the local, state, and federal level. And so there's been a number of activists and thinkers and authors, researchers that have been proposing this concept of a Green New Deal, which would basically focus um, a lot of the spending that we do at the federal level towards climate-friendly technology, investments, infrastructure, and those types of things. So what we wanna do is make sure that any type of investment or stimulus package that comes out of this process not only is um, fair to everybody, you know, um, especially those that were left behind in, in, in previous cases, um, but also in, includes green technology. So if we're going to actually build any transportation infrastructure, certainly we would want that to be low carbon or carbon neutral. Um, you know, I, th I think the time is now that any type of investment um, should basically, basically take into account all of the different sort of climate technologies we have, whether that's solar panels, et cetera. Um, and so I think one of the things that we've realized is that what we want to do is try to replicate sort of the values and practices that we do at Dr. Bronner's. So for example, um, executive pay is capped at five to one. So David Bronner can't make more than, you know, five times what the lowest person pays. So really our goal is to make sure that we have living wages, universal health care for our staff. Um, and we see that as absolutely critical, not just for our own team and our own company, but we want that for everybody. And really the only way to do that is to have a government program that allows for that and is as equitable as possible. And I would just say one sort of concrete way that I like to explain this is, you know, one thing that you might realize going to the supermarket or your farmer's market, you know, regenerative and organic products, they're, they're more expensive for sure. And that's in part because we've actually incorporated the true cost. We're, we're um, paying the far farmer fairly. We are you know, making sure that he or she is rewarded for all of the investment that they're doing to make a regenerative organic product. And so for consumers to be able to actually pay a farmer the true cost, they need to be paid fairly as well. So that means raising the minimum wage. We want to have a living wage for everybody so that way we can actually support this regenerative economy that we would like to see in the future. Yeah, it's so important. And, and just to underscore the commitment that you all uh, have already instituted at Dr. Bronner's to have a five to one executive pay cap is extraordinary. We know in many of the corporations in, here in the United States, we've got executives getting paid 100, 200, 300 times what many of their employees are being paid. And in this case, uh, the highest level executive is getting paid only five times what the rest of the team are getting paid. Yeah, so that allows for us to pay living wages to everybody, whether you're starting off, even interns. We have, we actually are able to provide, you know, a living wage for interns, which is pretty unique. I mean, yeah. I, I, for one, was, you know, went into huge debt just trying to intern for, you know, other nonprofits. And so for us to be able to do that, I think is, is a great example. And it just shows to show you with this sort of commitment you can actually do some pretty remarkable things. I, 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 I hand it to the broader family for, for doing these things. They do fantastic work. You know, it reminds me of a, a wonderful quote that I've seen attributed to Gandhi that says, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And uh, I think, you know, what you guys are doing at Dr. Bronner's is such an exemplary uh, example of what's possible, what needs to be done, what we sh should be supporting. 
And uh, I want to thank you, Ryan, in the context of all of the uh, disruption and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, disorientation that's happening right now with coronavirus. Thank you so much for taking time to visit with us. And uh, before we sign off, I just I want to ask you if if there's anything else uh, you'd like to share with the audience um, in general. And uh, on behalf of the audience, I'll thank you again. Well, thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate the the opportunity. I, I love all of the different activities that you all are doing, just between education and giving people this concrete things to do in their own, you know, backyards. I mean, it's fantastic. So, so hats off to you all. Um, I would say, you know, as as frightening as you know, COVID nineteen is, I, I also see it as a, as a very unique, almost once in a lifetime opportunity for us to remake our world um, by creating those community connections you know, just rethinking how, what we want to prioritize. You know, I, I live in Southern California. Um, I work from home and it's been, you know, challenging indeed to be able to, you know, sort of reorientate our life to make sure that we are keeping ourselves and our communities safe um, from transmission of this disease. But also I've seen some pretty beautiful things in just the last, you know, week or two that I'd like to see continue on once we resolve this. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to sort of, you know, continue to build those communities. Um, and, and sort of take that momentum forward. So that way we can make sure that all of the values that we'd like to see um, come out of this, this sort of crisis um, are then, you know, a little bit on, on solid, solid footing. But let's not forget the lessons learned over the last couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And... Thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.